welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. And joining me on the other line, now that she has checked in on her alligator self, it's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> Hello. I love that. I, You know, I want an alligator self. Who doesn't? I can't imagine anybody who would not. I mean, fair. <laughs> totally fair point. <laughs> Look, I mean, Alligator Loki is arguably the high point of this episode for me, as we'll discuss. And, you, <laughs> oh and Alligator Loki only got about a second and a half of screen time, so... A- and some people who watched this episode initially didn't even see it the first time, so... I, I, I definitely very, very, very much knew there was a post credit sequence and stayed around for it the first time I watched this. I definitely did not need to be reminded <laughs> the literal next day on the internet to go watch it. <laughs> definitely. Listen, I, you know, I'm going to take you at your word and just <laughs> like, I'm going to, I'm really going to accept that definitely and <laughs> moving on. Good. So, I think that's the spirit of the, of the situation here. <laughs> we'll get into the rest of it. Um, all right. So we are back with Loki season one, episode four. It's the same spate of director and writer. So Kate Heron directs this episode. She directs all the episodes. And then it's written by uh, Michael Waldron, Bisha Kelly, who's the story editor, who right now is the writer of um, Ms. Marvel, a, a new Disney Plus show. And um, Eric Martin is also also um i think one of the writers from the writers room who gets story credit on this episode as well john will you give us the summary of this episode it's a very brief summary this week frayed nerves and paranoia infiltrate the tva is mobius and hunter b15 search for loki and sylvie i feel like that captures the <laughs> close credits the like first <laughs> five minutes of this episode like where's sounds the about right sounds about right And there is indeed a lot that's going on in this episode, Danielle. Yeah, there is a ton that happens. And I suspect part of the reason we don't get it in the summary is because a a number of the things that happen in this episode are are like reveals for the audience. Sure. Um, But I think like a good place for us to start is building on a discussion we've been having over the last couple of weeks around Loki is this question of the TVA. And I think in this episode, we get the question in a different way, which is like, To what extent do we think the TVA matters? This is indeed one of my central in-universe questions. It's both a Marvel Splain question, and we'll get into some of the specifics of it a little bit later on and in the future episodes of Loki, I'm sure. But I think more immediately for the purposes of our discussion here, we get the characters, particularly Renslayer in-universe, emphasizing the importance of the TVA, right? So Renslayer talks about how impossible it is to keep the timeline stable, that it's only the timekeepers that keep us between, or keep us from full calamity, as she calls it. And that sort of heightening of without this institution, without this government, well, I'm going to call it a government or sovereign or whatever, then there would be pure chaos. Like it's giving me Hobbes vibes. It's giving me- Huge Hobbes talk, vibes. So again, it's, it's, as we'll talk about later, it's giving me extreme flashbacks to the Bush administration <laughs> and so on and so forth. But the dedication and the importance that those who work within the TVA ascribe to the work of the institution I think seems important both for the mechanics of the show, but also as a larger question. Yeah. I mean, the Hobbes vibes are are really like abound in this episode and um, Renslayer is doing a great job of playing the role of like loyal foot soldier to yes. the, to the Leviathan. Right. Um, 
And I think what is what is made interesting by this episode is we get all of these repeated statements by Renslayer about how important the timekeepers are and 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 the importance of the timekeepers is emphasized every time she's talking to Mobius and like, oh, the timekeepers want to see you, the timekeepers want you to be there. Like their importance really looms large over this episode. And then we meet them, which when I was watching this for the first time, I was like, we're going to meet the timekeepers? Like, oh my god. Loki was right. They were space lizards, but even worse, robot space lizards all along. Well, yeah, and and part of why Loki um, makes the judgment of them being space lizards is because that's sort of the representation he gets yeah. in the, like, weird cartoon. Like, right. I miss Miss Minutes, by the by, um, but we'll, I think, meet her a little bit later again. And also the architecture of the timekeepers, right? So that not only has it been, to your point, the explanation that Renslayer gives about yeah. the, how much the timekeepers or the TVA matters, but also the literal space that the TVA inhabits yeah. is just a series of let us literally build up the timekeepers to epic scale yeah. to aesthetically center them and so on. Well, and like, uh, of course, this is like us smuggling the cave into the main discussion, <laughs> but it like the Hobbs vibes. Are we ever can- not doing that? No, we're always okay. already doing that. <laughs> um, but the Hobbs vibes here for me are very much like, oh, what's fascinating and like get what gets undermined, right? And and undermined in an important way is like in Leviathan, you never meet the Leviathan. Like the Leviathan does not exist as as like a finite being. It might be represented by one, but it's yeah. not it like the whole point is that it, it can't be contained. Right? Let's let's keep going with this metaphor because the only representations we get of the Leviathan in Hobbes' Leviathan are A, the biblical reference, yep. and B, the frontispiece, right? The uh, image of the Leviathan that is provided. And this ultimately only ever metaphorical because it's yes. a being that's literally cr- constructed of the bodies of all the people of the city over which the Leviathan rules and looks. Yeah, and here, where the realm of authority is time and temporality, <laughs> I think it's it's like the undermining I'm thinking about is like they enter a room. So I, as a political theorist, am trained to the like, oh, we're never going to meet the timekeepers because we never meet the Leviathan. You could never meet the Leviathan. That's the whole thing. You, th- there can be representations. We can get the weird cartoon. We can get the like weird statues that prop up the TVA, but we can never meet them. And then in this episode, we're like led into the room that arguably hosts the timekeepers. And it's revealed that they are robots, which is like, you know, it's the man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz all along. Exactly. And and if Hobbes is not everybody's cup of tea, there's a certain way in which we could take this in a religious lens and be like, for different religions, right, you may or totally. may not actually be able to... To, you you may or may not be able to represent God or gods right. or goddesses or heavenly or divine beings yeah. or whatever, but your chances of actually like seeing one not very high in my limited understanding of world religions. Not very high, not very high at all. And so I think like the question that the episode poses or that is, the is the question: Is God really Chuck E. Cheese? Is that the question? 
Oh my God. I told John this before we started and I'm happy to like reveal it on air for everybody. But my notes say are timekeepers or, or Chuck E. Cheese uh, characters when we walk into that room. (laughs) That's a Danielle analogy, which is spot on and makes me eager for what I'm sure exists, which is the redoing mashup of the scene where somebody has (laughs) replaced the Lizard robots with actual just three animatronic Chuck E. Cheeses. Oh my god. Animatronic Chuck the abandoned animatronic Chuck E. Cheeses that people post pictures of sometimes online, like yeah. haunt my my it's nightmares. Terrifying. And you know who spent time at Chuck E. Cheeses in the early nineties? I did. Oh, it was not a Hanley family. I think maybe I went to a birthday party at one Chuck E. Cheese once. It was too expensive for us and there were too many children to deal with. <laughs> Like, at a Chuck E. Cheese. For me, like, there was only my sister and I, so while there were many, many other children, my parents were like, okay, we can do this. We can handle it. And you know what? Bless them. Um, (laughs) Because if I was, if I had children, which will never happen, pass. Hard pass on Chuck E. Cheese or equivalent. Hard pass on Chuck E. Cheese. Hard pass. Um, (laughs) Okay. Should we get back to thinking a little (laughs) bit about uh, Loki, even though you are trying very hard to pull us away from Loki at every at, at every which way. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the other question that, that gets raised in this episode that is like a consistent question in the series is what makes a Loki a Loki? And so what do we learn uh, potentially about being a Loki in this episode? So I'm going to throw this back to you because you can explain the significance of this line mm-hmm. or this question much better than I can. But The question is raised between Loki and Sylvie over whether being destined to lose makes a Loki a Loki. So how do those two characters differ on how they would answer that question? Yeah, so so Sylvie raises the question in this way, right? And she's, I think, feeling like quite down about this. And Loki answers like, no, we're not we're not destined to lose. It's, it's, it's that it's not about losing. It's about the fact that we survive. And I think that viewers of the, the rest of the movies in the MCU at this point would know that like Loki is always pretending to die or like it looks to the audience like Loki is dying and always comes back. And we talked a little bit about this in the last episode, I think where Loki like, you know, Thor presumes Loki dead, but the beginning of Ragnarok basically opens with like Loki pretending to like be his father and Thor realizing that it's like, oh, it's not Odin, it's Loki. And Thor's angry because Thor's like, I grieve for you. Um, so I think this idea that a, a Loki survives, there's something scrappy about Loki. There's something like enduring or like this willingness to endure that Loki is touching on that Sylvie is not. And I think part of, part of that difference is because, you know, Loki has grown up in a palace and like, yes, like there have been challenges, but like there's something a little bit more like gold dip spoon about Loki, which I think can tap into the like, a little bit of the hope of like we survive and Sylvie as she says has grown up at the end of a thousand worlds and so there's something a little bit more despairing about her 
I could imagine for somebody who was within the MCU as opposed to an outsider noob like me, then the possibility that when Loki is pruned in the episode actually does raise the possibility of maybe he has actually been eliminated because of the apparent finality until the post-credit sequence of pruning. And I could imagine that being qualitatively different than other ways Loki seemed to have been threatened or seems to have been potentially killed in other MCU situations. And so thus, I think the stakes of Loki saying that he is a survivor and then the possibility for, uh, you know, five minutes or whatever that he had been pruned and fully eliminated, or at least this variant of him had. Yeah did carry with it for an in-universe viewer some severe stakes. Yeah, and I would also say that a lot of these MCU shows, these are all, like, the beginning of Phase 4, right? So if, like, Endgame, Infinity War, Endgame, and um, Spider-Man Far From Home, like, these are the three movies that happen at the end of Phase 3. And, like, Infinity War and Endgame in particular are these sort of, like, fanfares and and like real periods at the end of sentences and so when this scene airs for people who are viewing it like in in real time right loki hasn't been renewed for season two tom hiddleston hasn't said whether he's going to continue to play loki and and there are a lot of these these um disney plus shows feel a little bit like sort of like goodbye love letters to some of these characters at where with new versions of them stepping in. So like Sylvie, there's a, I think a, a read of this where like, okay, Loki's pruned. He's gone. Sylvie's the new Loki. She's going to be our agent of chaos. We kind of don't know like what her deal is. She might be more chaotic than like the version of Loki that we had that we had lost in Infinity War. That would be a good thing for the record. Okay. Uh, so a related question to your, this, uh, this matter of Loki rejecting that losing is what characterizes yeah. a Loki is this question that I found myself asking in relation to Mobius's relationship with Loki and that what does being good mean for or mean to a Loki? Because seemingly... There's some resolution here by Loki to be good or promote the good or something like that in this episode in a way that wasn't quite there in the preceding episodes. Huh. It's interesting that you read it like that because I I think, like, Loki's whole thing for me, like, on my read, Loki, the fluidity of Loki is important, whether that be sexual fluidity, whether that be, like, fluidity in terms of the relationship between good and evil. Like, I think that it is, yeah, I don't necessarily know that Loki resolves to be good. I, what I think is happening here is Loki is, um, like is opposed to the sinister. And I think he sees the way in which the TVA is manipulating as, and lying as sinister. Like, it's not whether it's good or bad, it's, it's like the, it's the ill intent that is a problem for him. Sure. That makes, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? That if it was more fun chaotic, that'd be a different story. Yeah. But it, because it's sinister chaotic, uh, to change our alignment grid language a little bit, then it's a problem. 
Yeah, then it's a problem. And also, it's, like, sinister, because Loki's not on board for the sinister, but he's on board for the chaotic, and so, like, if the sinister is outweighing the chaotic, then that's the problem for him. Right. And, in fact, arguably, I mean, granted, I'm sure we'll find more about the TVA out on the subsequent episodes, but without a TVA, presumably there would also be more chaos in the world because there's less, like, maintenance of the sacred timeline or whatever. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think this is like, right, we are confronted with four different Lokis at the end of this episode, like in that in that brief snapshot. And so it does seem, there seems to be something about Loki and chaos that are closely correlated um, that would necessitate the constant pruning of timelines that like Lokis are involved with. Sure. So the, I think the related question to what makes a Loki a Loki, and I think this question is more interesting for Sylvie than it is for Loki, although mm-hmm. there's questions about it for Loki as well, and you even addressed this in what you were saying a few minutes ago, and that is about what makes a place home for yeah. Loki, for Sylvie, for a Loki, or the biggest version of the question is what makes a place home for a variant, period. Yeah, and I think, like, so we get the Sylvie quote, which we, which I talked about a little bit before, about growing up at the, at the end of a thousand worlds, um, which for my own sort of, like, research purposes is fascinating, um, which I also think is, is why. Is, is that a Euripides reference, just like the name <laughs> of the band Hole is a Euripides reference, as you and I recently learned and discussed? <laughs> Uh, yes, it is. It's always a Euripides reference with me. (laughs) And the canon in Daniel's embodied mind, it's a Euripides reference. Always, always. It's like, oh, like, is it, is it like chaos or is it just devastation? Like those are, those are the two branches of Euripides we get. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, right. So for Sylvie, the the idea that she grows up in all of these places like around all this destruction and yet but like those are not her home like i think the scene that that we get in the beginning of the episode where sylvia is is taken by the timekeepers um away from asgard like i think she views that as being taken away from home asgard is her home um whereas i think this version of of loki also like is probably in the same space, like that Asgard is home, right? We keep getting Asgard references from both of them. Yeah, obviously. And Loki gets sent to a particular moment of his life in Asgard by Mobius and the TVA as his like time mind memory prison situation. Yeah, and he's sort of like relieved by it, right? Like, oh I know this Initially, place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then he just gets like kneed in the balls a thousand times. And yeah. he's less relieved by that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, okay. So I think what's left on the table for us to think about in terms of big themes in this episode are the, I would say, interrelated themes of love and friendship. Yes. What did you think about these, John? Uh, pass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and pass in the sense that, and this is where my restraint and my generosity uh, that I've so like, you know, selflessly offered for the, for the, for the preceding (laughs) several weeks. I was going to drop away a little bit and we're just going to like bring the hater aid in the sense that I think that 
with the possible exception, possible exception of Renslayer and Mobius, I don't think the love, friendship, emotional beats work basically at all in the episode. And I particularly think that this friendship that is supposed to have been established between Mobius and Loki, and then the way that that comes to tragic ends in this episode basically doesn't function with the possible exception of maybe if you are within the MCU universe and have more context, maybe it works then. But without that context, I think it's just like as a narrative storytelling creation, like it just doesn't work. I don't think. I'm interested to, for you to elaborate just a little bit more on that. Like, where do you see this friendship ending? Like what's the end of the friendship for you? No, not that the friendship ends, the end, like the tragic ends of oh. Loki and Mobius themselves, which are supposed to be emotionally resonant or like peak moments yeah. or, cli- or emotional climaxes in the arc of this episode. Yeah. Like, I don't think that they don't hit, basically. Yeah. So, so I think like this is also a way that we can transition into, and I want to, we can still think maybe a little bit about love and friendship and we'll Let's talk- maybe do that first. Like, where do you see, how do you see love and friendship working in this episode or being expressed or communicated or signified in this episode? Yeah. So I actually see it in a lot of places. And I think like the, the funniest one, the, like the most humorous version of this is when um Mobius exclaims to Loki you fell for yourself like he because Loki is expressing feelings for for Sylvie um so I think that's the funniest one but this takes us back to something that we were talking about last time and you asked me in Marvel Splaining I believe um about uh Loki's theory about the fact that if they get on the, if they get on the ship, then the ship will take off. Right. Like, and like what's happening with all of that. And I think this, this episode actually like brings that back. It brings that question into focus a little bit more. It's not getting on the ship that changes anything, but the thing that enables, um, Mobius to realize where Loki and Sylvie are is the skin to skin contact between Loki and Sylvie and, and like the feelings around that. So, so when they hold hands as they watch the exceedingly imminent destruction. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that like that emotional beat, whether or not the emotional beat works, I think, which I think is a valid question and I disagree with you, but I think like your point, your point, is is well taken and I think I'm within the MCU and so I have more investment in these characters and that's fine. But like structurally for like the plot, the the emotional beat is key, right? Like the fact that these two characters have some kind of connection, physical, emotional, or whatever, like is the thing that enables the plot to continue to move along. So like whether it hits versus like its utility in the plot, I think are things we want to think about together. I believe you are 100% correct about that for at least two reasons. One of those reasons is that I've seen this episode twice, and did I realize that that is what enables them to see the little like uptick on the time nexus chart? Shows you how I'm watching this, that like I actually don't care about how like this emotional moment or supposed to be emotional moment between Loki and Sylvie influences like plot dynamics. And then secondly, that that is not what I 
find most interesting about potential emotional significant mom- emotionally significant moments in a piece of fiction of some kind is that like if it's moving along the plot that's like the tenth most interesting or important thing it can do for me. Oh no, I I I'm on board with that. Like it's not the most interesting or important thing that it can do for me, but I I, I call it out here as like okay, we can evaluate this in terms of things we're interested in or but we can also evaluate this this connection in terms of like how it functions within the structure of the episode. Yeah. And I think it tells us uh, the th- the thing that I do think is significant though is like it tells us about the um the intensity perhaps of Loki's feelings but just like the 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 sheer intensity of bringing two variants like Loki and Sylvie together, like what that could create, like that it's potentially combustible, right? Like, like the, the thing that, that Mobius I believe says is like, have you ever seen a branch look like that? And like the implication there is that like the, the slope of the line, look at my math self. (laughs) (laughs) I'm impressed. Y equals MX plus B. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know if I've been able to recall that one. So now I'm double impressed. (laughs) But the slope of the line is, is telling Mobius something about that connection. So his point later about like, you felt for yourself is played for jokes. And I would say that that is the best joke of the episode since you didn't have one. (laughs) It's the closest to hashtag one, the one good joke. But I think, like, the point that I'm trying to make is love is a central, uh, a central piece of this episode. And this question of, like, love or self-love, which has been something that has been circulating a bit through the earlier episodes, like, really comes to the forefront here for jokes, for plot, but also in terms of, like, okay, this is, this is at least in the in the universe of this episode, like this is a real connection. It has real implications. It could have real consequences. Yeah. Until we get to the next part of this discussion, I will just fully grant that point. Okay. <laughs> and if we fully stipulate that, then one thing I'm very willing to compliment the show on is to not like have given Loki and Sylvie like a dramatic kiss at the end, right as they're about to be pulled back to the TVA, mm-hmm. which a worse version of the show would have done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I want to read that generously as like the question of this being romantic love, I think is, is open at this point. Um, and I think, and I think it's telling that Mobius is the one who wants to read it as romantic love and i.e. it's not how the people in the dyad are themselves relating to it or reading it. And because, At least not yet. And because Mobius is attached to the TVA and we have already meant to be suspicious of the TVA and its understanding of people, emotions, whatever, that that cautions against the an audience member shipping that too hard, let's say. Yeah. Well, and I, I've, I think that that's right. And I think the other, just like briefly, the other piece of this, and this is connected to the love or self-love, goes back to, if we recall, like from the first Loki episode that we did, right? The Loki that we are introduced to in this show is 2012 Loki. So this is a Loki that hasn't gone through like a set of emotional arcs in the MCU that, that like eventually lead to like a kind of um, emotional maturity in which he is not like just so 
self-obsessed and it's not only about the chaos it's about like something in addition to the chaos like his relationship to thor and whatever part of the way that i'm reading this like question of love in this show is like we're kind of getting a mini loki arc with regard to like love and self-love in the show and and i think that that raises a question connected to like what makes a loki a loki is a Loki always destined to like sort of go through this kind of like self-discovery or evolution? Fair enough. Since we're speaking of reading, I'm going to pull a Danielle and read from my notes. Uh, and this can transition us into the next point where Danielle Perfect. is about to read me for filth. If I understand <laughs> correctly. Oh yeah. So here are some verbatim things that these are different points in the episode in my notes. I have no emotional buy into Loki and Mobius. Loki and Mobius, very quick turnaround. This friend stuff isn't real. And this uh, sentimental, emotional moments do not work. I'm here only for Alligator Loki. Okay. Those are three different moments of my notes. Well, I think that leads quite nicely into this (laughs) next question uh, to cap off our general discussion here is, like, do you, are you enjoying this? Be honest. I am mostly enjoy. I'm. I enjoyed watching this the first time more than the second time. To be quite honest, okay, I'm just an enjoyment level. I'm still enjoying like the time I'm spending with the episodes, but I would go basically no further than that. <laughs> I don't think that there's much more beyond that, or that so much work has to be done by people like you and I to draw out more interesting things. But aesthetically emotionally like on levels beyond just is this an enjoyable way to spend 45 minutes it's not really working for me and this episode in particular is one that didn't work because it's so in my read so in contingent on having some emotional investment in these characters and these relationships and i just purely do not yeah that this episode in particular didn't work for me beyond like the plot dynamics to get us from the beginning to the end are vaguely enjoyable. And like, there are some interesting or moments that I would say are unintentionally funny throughout. So here's a different question, which I think will lead into my new theory about our relationship to these things. Great. Would you have would you have enjoyed this episode, this series, if it were the the same beats, the Loki Mobius of it all, the Loki Sylvia of it all, the like authority that we don't know really where the authority is from, this question of temporality, like would you have enjoyed those same pieces more if it wasn't dripping in content MCU-ness of it all? It's a Good, it's a good question. I would maybe, in like the most obnoxious academic way possible, reject the premise of that question <laughs> in the way, <laughs> in, in this, in the sense that I think that literally everything that's happening in this show is so contingent or dependent on the MCU of it all that without that broader determinative structuring framework and universe like there's there's no there there like there there is no show if it doesn't exist outside of the mcu and i don't mean that like on the literal level of like you can't have these characters or whatever but i i say that to to suggest that 
the emotional beats or the arcs, emotional arcs, or Loki's relation to moral goodness or any of these kinds of questions are questions that are askable only what only within the universe of Marvel I don't, and not from without. I don't think that that's right. I just yeah. I reject that because I'm just thinking about this like if you if this entire show existed mostly in the same way it did, let's say without the magical elements of it, right? And like and it was presented to us in the form of like a Station 11 or um I don't know, Maravie's Town or one of these other like prestige TV shows that y- you so you so love. I think that you would eat it up. Like, I think that, like, I think the MCU of it all is really, is, is functioning as a major obstacle for you, which I, which I like think is legitimate and, and, yeah. and value. But I think like, it's not an, I don't think it's an unaskable question. I think it's actually like the dismissing that question to me answers the question. Fair. I I think that that's a totally plausible way to respond to my uh, questioning of the premises. I will also say, and I'm going to both end this one, obviously. Yes. I will additionally say that the difference for me is that Station Eleven, to take that example. Which I have not watched. It has, and you would, I think, would actually like it, as I emphasize. It has to establish emotional relationships and how those emotional relationships are structured by respond to and kind of generate thoughts and feelings and aesthetic ideas about the world mm-hmm. that all has to be created within the universe of yeah. station 11 okay. and, and and as a sui generis story right like yeah. those relationships exist sui generis yeah. in a way that even with characters that only appeared in the comics or never existed at all in loki or any mcu show are inherently unable to be sui generis. And so it's like the sui generis of the world of Station Eleven itself. And that's, I think, the reasonable comp. Like, I don't think Mayor, Mayor of East Town yeah, 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 yeah. could, like, make sense as, a, as, like, what if this existed in that universe? But because there is, like, a little bit of scientific, sci-fic, sci-fi mm-hmm. elements to say something like Station Eleven, that's a reasonable comparison. But I, I just don't think that... I don't think you can translate back into a sui generis world from the MCU. It's Which I recognize is itself, it's, you know, if you go back to whenever Marvel Comics began, is itself its own sui generis world, but it's just become so content saturated. Like, I, I don't think that's a, well, that's a accurate descriptor anymore. I, I appreciate that point about, like, the sui generis nat- uh, nature of, Station Eleven and that, like, you have to watch all those relationships develop and therefore you, like, it is easier, ostensibly, to, like, buy into them because you're a part of their their development the entire time. But with the exception of Loki is a character before we get him in this series, all of the relationships in this series are are brand new, right? So that's why I'm saying, like, I, I think, like... I'll, I'll both end back to your both end. Like Please. I, I think that like, I think that's called a nexus event. If I understand, I believe it so. I think if we were in the same room and, and touched each other, there would be a, <laughs> a new branch of a timeline. <laughs> right, but I think like this is part of what I take to be for me the beauty of this series is like they are pulling a character that like MCU viewers have have gotten 
like more movies and engagement with, but the version of the character we get in this show has deleted all of that. Right. We get it. We get the, the, we get him watching his own life, but like in the first episode, but he hasn't experienced any of the things that we actually see. Yeah. I, I see that. I mean, uh, this is also a question about kind of subjectivism or something. And mm-hmm. that for me as a viewer who is actually severed from all of the supporting structures. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. That's not to say that for another viewer, similarly not supported by the structure of the universe that it would that it, it's always going to not work yeah i mean i think there are storytelling reasons that the like simple storytelling reasons sure. that some of the emotional beats don't work but i think to kind of use a comparison that's perhaps unfair against you i think that a relevant <laughs> a relevant ish comparison is say people who only watched game of thrones as a tv show and haven't read the books, haven't read like some of the supporting materials, right? Like the World of Ice and Fire or like mm-hmm. um, Fire and Blood or like mm-hmm. the Duncan Egg novellas mm-hmm. that Martin has written. And a total noob entering, and Game of Thrones has its flaws, whatever, as a TV show. But just to make the comparison, like, I think you can drop a new viewer into Game of Thrones season one and they will find more emotional beats that resonate with them yeah. than to drop a new viewer into season one of Loki. It's interesting. If they're similarly unstructured yeah, yeah, yeah. from the universe. And there are problems with that analogy no, no. I want to recognize, but I think that that's one way to think of it. Yeah. I whether, mean, whether like the George R. R. Martin, the things that he's interested in emotionally in the books or the things that um, Benioff and Weiss are interested in the TV show emotionally, whether those work if you drop them in in another universe or another show that doesn't have any like lore or background or world building or whatever is still an open question in this comparison. So I think this is exactly where the, like you and I are so separate on these things comes in. So first a story, then a read. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I can't wait. I'll steal myself for the read through the pleasure of the story. But the first MCU movie that I like saw and remembered seeing. So I saw Iron Man when it came out originally because it was at a period of time where I was seeing a lot of movies and like didn't think twice about it. But the first MCU movie I saw where I was like, huh, something's happening here. And I, I want to understand the pieces of this was Black Panther. So I saw Black Panther and then really soon after that saw Infinity War and realized that there was like a whole, they came out pretty close to each other. There was this whole like universe of ideas and things going on that like I could not tap into Black Panther, not so much, but I couldn't tap into in Infinity War. And so like the difference between you and I, I think is like you see Infinity War in this imagined world and you're like, fuck this. Like, (laughs) fuck any, like, having to understand any of this. The storytelling doesn't work. There's too many different pieces. Like, I can't be bothered with this. Right? Probably an accurate description if Danielle made me, sent me to, to like, a memory time loop where I had to watch Infinity War over and over again. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Okay. And I saw Infinity War and I was like, oh, now I understand that 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 the post-credit scene at the end of uh, Black Panther is important. I see why it's important. Now I need to go back and watch the rest of it. And so by the time 
uh, Endgame came out, I had watched all of the MCU movies. And at that time, there were only movies. There weren't, there like weren't TV shows. The MCU has like in the last couple of years, like expanded exponentially. But like my response to, oh my, oh, there's stuff I don't understand was not like, oh, this story is poorly written and I'm not invested in these characters. It was like, how do I become invested in these characters? And I think, and here's the read, right? So just before you get to the read, I want to say, I think that is a meaningful distinction between the way that you and I yeah. engage with storytelling, let's say. Yeah. And I think so, that's correct so far. We'll see where this goes next. So I think the read is that, and I know that I'm like harping on Station Eleven and I haven't seen it. And I actually like would like to watch it. But I think the difference between you and I when it comes to stuff like this is that is I would say an addendum to our like episode on like the meta theory of our engagement with content. Great. So anybody Love can it. go back and watch that. It's you a couple of episodes it. ahead in the feed. I think that it is you aesthetically think that there is a a a right or correct way for things to appear and be represented and be engaged with. And I am interested not in a, in, you know, a, a correctness or a pure like aesthetic experience or, or things that get us close to that pure aesthetic experience or the platonic form of aesthetic experience, oh, no. if you will. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in like the, in perhaps the internal cohesion and, and even chaos of it all. I'm interested in enjoying the thing as thing. And you are interested in whether or not the thing gets us to the form of like aesthetic engagement. Read. Other than with the gigantic caveat that Danielle just accused me of being a dirty Platonist and I'm incredibly upset about this and I'm just going to shake me to my core. <laughs> the, that's what I'm wrong? about to say. Is that you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Against my own will and judgment, yes. you are, aesthetic judgment, one might say, you are right. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I wouldn't frame it as that there are, mm, that there mm. are objectively right aesthetics. I would frame it as I want something that is aesthetically ambitious and that it's like trying to touch the aesthetically pure in some way. Yeah. And... But I think that you and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull in an example I said to you off air. But like I think that you do think there are things that are aesthetically pure. And I raise yes. the I raise yes. the example of so as listeners of this podcast know I've been on a bit of a Harry Styles kick lately. And a few weeks ago, I said to John, like, oh, Harry Styles does this cover of, I don't know, some band, Wet Legs, song, Wet Dream. And John was like, that song is great. You know, like, you knew the song, you knew the band. And then you listen to the, you listen to it and watched the video mm -hmm. yeah. of Harry Styles doing it on BBC One. What was your reaction to that? My reaction was that this is a good cover. Um, obviously Harry Styles and he has a really good supporting band for yeah. this performance and they put on a really good performance, not just musically. It's all very good, but like the cover, the, the original is way better. And that Harry Styles is 
persona may work for the song, but his voice is like not quite working for what the song is doing. Right. Like that. I believe the way you said it to me was the song. He, his voice is too poppy for the song. Mm-hmm. And, and like, this is, I think this is precisely the example where our like divergent approaches come in because I had never heard the, the original of wet leg. And so when I listened to it, I was like, okay, this is good, but I'm much more like the Harry Styles version is more fun for me because it's my entry into it. Um, but for you, Harry Styles falls short of a thing that like it should be. And for me, yeah, there's it's no a, should. Like, phenomenal copy of the form of the song. Exactly. Which is, like lives in the form of it. The form of indie sleaze is like embodied by. And I'm like, give me the mimesis, baby. <laughs> 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 which honestly, like I should get tattooed on my back. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I was trying to think is the analogy that Danielle should put that on her arm the way that I have to <laughs> on my arm or is that danielle's like tinder bio i can't decide maybe it's maybe it's a true both Both hand (laughs) (laughs) okay that is my read of you i think like i want to loki is such an interesting vehicle i think for us to continue to think about our like increasingly divergent aesthetic tastes because we're not diverging on the Americans, right? But Loki yeah. gives us a vehicle to like think about these tensions. So I want to flag this read, obviously correct of you, and <laughs> for us to come back to again at the end of the se- at the end of this season to think about whether there were pieces that that made this uh, this season of television more or less enjoyable than like you're feeling right now. And whether yeah. like we might soften the view that like you are an aesthetic platonist. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I will say, I think there's one dynamic in this episode that captures all of this. And maybe this is a way to kind of wrap up this meta point that you have uh, brought to our attention back to this question. That I believe I posed to you a little while ago of like, what does being good to Loki mean? Yeah. And this for me is closely tied to the question of his friendship with Mobius or supposed friendship with Mobius. Mm-hmm. Like Mobius sees what is good about Loki. And in some ways, like I think the most aesthetically pure thing is that if Loki is a pure chaos agent, the the end, right? Like that's, yeah. that would, to me would be the most aesthetically interesting Loki. Like I don't want to like layer on top the kind of arc that is a story within the MCU mostly good people, but there's some shades of gray overcome an enemy mm-hmm. um, of some kind or a nemesis or whatever. That's a less interesting structure to me than like, let's just let him chaos everywhere. But like letting him chaos everywhere doesn't necessarily give us a good story. And I'm less interested in a yeah. story than like, exactly. just give me some aesthetically fascinating stuff that's happening. Exactly. Like, there's a story to the young Pope. It doesn't make any sense, but it's just there's a story there. (laughs) But, like, aesthetically, it's a fascinating thing to me. Yeah, I think this is just, like, more for us to ruminate on. So I want us to put a pin in this here and then... Like Nietzsche said, ruminate on this like a cow and it's cut. (laughs) Oh, my God. Too perfect. (laughs) Um, All right. Let's get into some Marvel explaining. What questions do you have that are raised by this episode? 
Okay, what exactly is it that Mobius learned or realized? And I just have to say, the like talking about these biggest set of <laughs> questions, and now I'm going to like pose these questions to you. The disjuncture of my experience of that is really, really funny to me. So, Danielle, what did Mobius <laughs> learn or realize when he watched the recording that he stole of C20's interrogation? He realizes that Loki's not lying to him. And how does he? How does C20's C- interrogation tell him that? Because C20 is like, like I was real. I had friends. Like you know, like. C20 is is saying the same flavor of things that Loki says to Mobius, that, like, the TVA is lying to you. Okay. So it's, like, confirmation for him. Okay, that's helpful. This question you can give a solid American Daniel Dossier no comment to if you yeah. wish. But if the timekeepers are seemingly only animatronic Chuck E. Cheese robots in <laughs> space-time lizard suits... yeah. Who actually created the TVA? No comment. No comment. Okay, sure. Um, This you might also have to no comment, so we're (laughs) really going for Daniel Dossier vibes. (laughs) How much or little does Renslayer actually know about the, like, origins of the TVA? And or I think she at least understands that they're just capturing variants and turning them into TVA employees. Yeah, so I think she knows more. So part of this is a no comment, but like I think the 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 non no comment version is like she definitely knows more than she's saying to Mobius. Yeah, right. Um, but the to me the part that like is is I've watched this multiple times, but to me the part that's confusing is like does Renslayer know that these are not the timekeepers? is I think up in the air and I want to read it as like, she doesn't, she doesn't know. She knows the, like the important facts about the TVA and variants and all of that. She's not saying those things to Loki, but I don't think she knows that these are not actually the timekeepers. Okay, great. And then this, I think you can actually comment on. Yeah. And this I'm assuming requires knowledge of other MCU movies and yeah. or comics. But uh, who is Sif and why does she want to kick Loki in the balls over and over again? Sif is one of like Thor's friends and Loki in Thor, the first Thor, is also one of, he's Thor's brother, but he's also one of Thor's friends. Um, and so, you know, like to go back to thinking about Loki as an agent of chaos, right? Like he's clearly like done a messed up thing to Sif, who is someone that he knows like that cut off part of her braid or something. Yeah, cut off her hair. Um, but they are they're friends with each other. Sif is the only woman, um, or the only female bodied person in the the crowd. It's like Loki, Thor, the Warriors Three, and Sif. All right. Fair enough. That is, I think, a sufficient enough download of Sif. All right. I'm ready to, you know, after I was just been pouring <laughs> out the haterade, I'm ready to nonetheless uh, be victorious in Easter egg hunt again. Oh, my God. Ugh. Okay. So here are um, three things that are potentially Easter eggs. And John has to pick out the thing that is actually the Easter egg in these three. Great. Okay? So the first is that Sif, the scene with Sif is actually a, a scene with lines from Thor the Dark World. The second is that the FDR pen that we get the close-up on is a pen from Mobius's pre-variant life. 
which we know from the comics. Um, and then the third is that the variants that Mobius mentions, um, when he's talking about like, you know, we've dealt with this, we've dealt with that. And like these two Lokis are like really messing things up. So he talks about vampires, Titans, Kree, that those are all, um, actual, uh, say races of characters in the MCU. Okay. Wow. This one's actually tough. I'm going to have to make a guess. I don't even know if I can reason my way through this one. Okay. I'm going to say that it's not the FDR pen. Okay. For nebulous reasons that I'm sure the timeline of the comics could have stretched back. I'm, I think they came out probably after FDR was, uh, had died, but you know, I'm going to throw that one out. So Sif scene with actual lines. I'm going to guess that we have done a lot of seeing things that actually happen elsewhere in the MCU, especially back in like episode one or two, I forget. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to vote that all of the variants that Mobius mentions are actual beings within the MCU. John, you win again. (laughs) Amazing. My enjoyment out of winning of this increases every week. I know. The Sith scene is not from Thor the Dark World, but it is actually a scene from Norse Norse mythology. So like one of... That was that was a good good attempt. (laughs) I thought that that was going to get you. (laughs) Yeah, that was Um, very good. Yeah, Loki as, like, god of mischief in Norse mythology, like, chops off Sif's hair. And so this is, like, a nice callback to Norse mythology, but not actually a callback to the MCU. So, yeah, you're three for four right now. Three for four. So I've guaranteed myself at least 50% season long. Yeah, hopefully our guest next episode can help me stump you. I have put that in the request. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, let's move from Marvel explaining into Glass. So into talking a little bit about things that are maybe not part of our big questions, but are still things that are, you know, maybe plaguing us about this episode. I have a question pass, for... Pass on the sarcastic uh, comment about plagues. Continue. Okay. In multiple senses. <laughs> so I have a question for you that I think connects us to some of the points in Marvel explaining and also in our main discussion, which is, what do you think of the reveal that everyone's a variant? I think that most of all what that does is confirm Loki and then eventually both Loki and Sylvie's interpretation of the TVA that they had offered back from Loki first showing up in episode one. But it especially upholds um, Acab Sylvie's, like these are fascist, omniscient tyrants, mm-hmm. uh, her reading of it. And so I think that... You know, of course, like as the political theorist plus Marvel noob, the political and ethical and philosophical stakes of the TVA are likely to be one of the most interesting things to me in this show. So the confirmation, which I we as viewers could have assumed was correct, and then now characters in the show itself, especially Mobius, are able to confirm that it's correct, just like puts forward or upholds the Loki is right all along point that I think I offered back in episode one and that you said would become more relevant as the season went on. Yeah. I actually really like that. Um, I like that connection to episode one. And I think like it is on the one hand, the show, this is a big reveal in the show. On the other hand, like I think your point pushes this too. Like, we could anticipate this point um, in the show. So it's both important, but also like not super surprising. 
And I think that both of those things together kind of like color this point. I will say that I found it interesting that they went with B-15, right, played by Wumi Masaku, who's in yeah. We Own the City that I just watched, and she's quite good in that. Okay. Um, she doesn't get nearly as much to do in Loki as she does in that <laughs> show, but yeah. moving on. That her arc and that Sylvie recognizes that showing somebody who works for the TVA what is actually happening, A, furthers her plans or furthers her her desires to fuck up the TVA, and then maybe also has some emotional resonance beyond that, Mm -hmm. was, I think, an intriguing way for the show to make that point clear. Yeah. And... I think it letting B-15 be more of a character and less of like, a, you know, the one soldier who gets more than, you know, one yeah. line per episode yeah. was a useful way of doing that. Yeah, that like that perhaps like although these are all variants, they're, they're also not necessarily automatons. Yeah. Right? Like th- that. Yeah, I like that. I- and, and, and I mean, on that point in particular, that's, you know, B-15 actually, like, exercising some agency against the TVA itself, in fact, functions as additional confirmation that these people were variants, right? Mm -hmm. They are people who are willing to go outside what is laid down by temporal sovereigns, um, if you will. I will. (laughs) I thought so. Um, Yeah, and I think the combination of B-15 being willing to go outside and C-20's, like, insistence that that it is real, I felt like those were good uses of those characters. Yeah, and the fact that it's C-20 specifically saying it's real, which actually works both in reference to the TVA is real, what they what they do to us is real, mm-hmm. and that we existed as actual beings yeah. before becoming what we became or were forced to become by the TVA after being abducted um, and detained is real. The multiple layers of that are worth noting, I think. Yeah. <laughs> what about the appearance of the many Loki variants? Um, like I said, Alligator Loki, best part of the episode, no no doubt, even though they only got, you know, the two seconds of screen time. I mean, I had to have this explained to me probably by Danielle and by things I read on the internet last summer when the show actually came out that the old school Loki is like OG Loki, yes, in some form or another. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's nice to have it confirmed that there are all of these different Lokis running around. It only kind of amplifies the mischief of it all while also amplifying or forcing the audience to question, okay, if they're just taking variants and turning them into like authorities of the carceral state or operatives of the carceral state, what actually happened to the people who are pruned? works because Loki obviously has been pruned himself from the timeline so that kind of, if they're going to keep him as a character, then he has to reappear again. But the opening that will then be explored next week of the world in which maybe people who are pruned or beings who are pruned, um, that's like a kind of necessity that I suppose is done fairly well. Yeah. And I think that, that like, obviously we're focusing on the Lokis that, that were pruned, but this uh, next week's episode will spawn many a meme about like others being pruned. Not somehow a- <laughs> Mobius returns. Somehow Mobius returns. Exactly. Um, 
I mean, and the the question when I watched this the first time, and I think this is a question that's still open, when I watched this the first time, it's it's is Mobius a Loki, right? Like, is Mobius a potentially a Loki variant? Like, he's the one that's obsessed with looking for Loki. So, like, I think that that question is open for us, too. Never considered that question. <laughs> um, but I like that question. Okay. Because we could take it beyond, uh, like, haha universe or mm-hmm. MCU question to, uh, it's related to the points that you've been raising consistently about self-love and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, the, those are the pieces that I'm, like, maybe trying to, to fit together. Like, self-love and self-knowledge as, like, as things that all come together. And they don't necessarily all have to fit together as nicely as this. And I'm assuming, you know, and I'm sure that this is a like fun Easter egg for not even Easter egg, but like more than that for people who are like deep in the lore of the comics and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that the like the Loki variance is just like a hotbed of of comics uh Easter eggs. We'll get some more of those next week and we'll talk about them. Fair enough. So while I'm in the mood to be generous after Daniel called me Plato earlier, I will say <laughs> that while the CGI of the timekeepers is questionable in certain ways, I'm mostly here for it. And also that the CGI of Loki and Sylvie scene as they're sitting by the Lamentus to whatever wake mm-hmm. as the event is nexusing is yeah. actually pretty cool looking. Yeah. Uh, the, the timekeeper CGI, I feel like the, I'm also on board with it. I'm, the CGI is one of those things that like that really takes me out of these shows. The CGI in Loki actually like they're doing a pretty decent job when it looks very CGI. I think there's a reason for that. And I think the timekeepers, the fakeness of them being like recorded in the BS CGI that we get is like, is part of the whole thing. That's the right point to make. I think for sure. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm on board with this also. Um, you have something here. Sylvie is a cosmic disappointment. Yeah, I'm just interested in this. Is something one of the timekeepers says to Sylvie is they are brought before Sylvie and Loki are brought before them, and just the idea of being a cosmic disappointment is, I suppose, a sick burn, <laughs> but also is a very clear understanding of the TVA notion of what a being is meant to do and the actual like unfolding virtual potentiality of being uh, of a a being, right? So Sylvie that she had to jump around and survive all those ends of thousands of worlds. She says she's not supposed to exist, so on and so forth. I think is a, you know, that that contrasted with her being a cosmic disappointment, i.e. she failed what the sacred timeline had set out for her, that playing up that contrast is meaningful within the universe of the show, if we're going to grant its ability (laughs) to create meaningful things. And... In some Daniel Dossier elements, it has me, like, questioning about whether actually maybe Sylvie was supposed to survive all along, according to the Sacred Timeline, to play some role down the line. But that's probably for something else. No comment, but I like that. Um, My – one of my favorite things about the TVA, and I don't have very many favorite things about them, but one of my favorite things about the TVA is, like, its slogan, for all time always. And I just kind of love that we get um, B-15, like, run in to save the day, and she's like, for all time always, fuck you all. <laughs> like, 
Do you want to guess how I responded to that? Uh, was it a major eye roll? Or have you been able to peel your eyes back from the back of your head yet? I mean, it's a good thing I watched this show yesterday so I could see you on the screen today. <laughs> because, yes, yeah, the corniness of the slogans are not quite working for me. And I'm here for corny humor from time to time. But the, like, friends against time, for all time always, the for all time always, that's, like, the TV version of always already. So I give it a bit of a pass. But mostly eye rolls. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I but, like, I, we're taking the show seriously, but I think, like, the slogans are reminding us not to take it too seriously. Like, the, the ridiculousness of that, it, like, I think that everyone's in on that joke, right? Like the, of the, like the meta joke, like the creators of the show know how ridiculous something like that is. And we like in our like Habesian reading of this know how necessary a like ridiculous slogan is to perform the inculcation, right? Like all of it, it all comes together. Like, it's a very generous interpretation. Oh my god. Say, say this no is more. okay. Here's a here, <laughs> just like here's a question for you that yeah. may be a punishing question, <laughs> maybe in relation to all of this discussion, which is what would your memory prison be? I was having trouble coming up with an answer, and then you provided me with the answer, you know, a half hour ago. And that is like I'm all by myself. I don't have Danielle to rely on or talk through anything with, but I'm like <laughs> surrounded by the more questionable elements of the MCU fandom to just watch a double feature of Infinity War and Endgame on loop over and over <laughs> again. And then I have to report, record a podcast with like the 200 worst MCU fans. Oh man. That seems pretty terrible for so you. I, 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 don't, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know what my actual answer is, and I was trying to think about like a more <laughs> serious, emotionally resonant answer, yeah. and I couldn't come up with it, so I'm going to go with that. I think that mine is, and this is like both serious and jokey, but I, when I was younger, my brother and I would fight all the time, and my mom, I don't know where she came up with this one, was like, and you know, we're like two of the five kids, and she's like, no, 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 we can't have this constant fighting can't happen. So every time we would get in a fight, we would have to put a piece of clothing in our suitcase. And when the suitcase was packed, we had to move out. And I was like, <laughs> wow, it's like, like That's intense. seven or something or like eight. I think it must've been when Becky was born. So I was, I was probably like seven or eight. And I think that my <laughs> time prison memory would be like the day that the suitcase filled up, which it inevitably did because like, my brother and I are so similar, so we would always fight. So the day the suitcase filled up was like, okay, well, you better call grandma or Aunt Leah and see if you can live with them because you guys have to both move out. And wow. it's just like the sheer, like, and of course she didn't make us move out because she's not right. a monster. And I think after that, we probably fought a little bit less. Um, but yeah, that would be mine. <laughs> I, I have, I, there's a, I need some time to digest that, I think. <laughs> when I did a lot of improv in Philly, we, one of the form, one of the forms of improv is like, you tell a story 
And from that story, that that's like what the scenes, what the improv scenes are, are sort of like inspired by. So I told a version of that story and the scenes that it inspired were wild. (laughs) Did any of them involve Washington DC based travel agents who are trying to like figure out where you're going with your suitcase, but in fact they have a hidden agenda? They did not, but they should have. Okay, great. That's a great link. A great link. Okay, who Let's do what I can? <laughs> who is our minor character of the week? It's obviously the timekeepers um, in obviously. general. So they're voiced by Lauren Rivard and Robert Pralgo, and then a third uncredited to be revealed later uh, actor. Yep. And I especially want to call out as the minor character of the week, like a sub minor character of the week. Yeah. Is particularly one of the timekeepers who I think is stage right, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. has an incredible animatronic lizard mustache. And I want to call that out as the true minor character of the week. I love it because I think the animatronic lizard mustache was the thing that that like tip me off to like this can't be real before we get that reveal in the show. <laughs> yes. I also appreciate that both of us went with animatronic is our like keyword to describe what the timekeepers Absolutely. are. Absolutely. We get from Sylvie mindless androids yeah. is her descriptor, which also works. It feels like more on Sylvie in general feels more on John's vibe. <laughs> Um, yes, as I said before the show, like Sylvie is infinitely more interesting to me as a character <laughs> around which to build a TV show than Loki. Oh my god. All right, let's get into politics in the MCU a little bit. There's a lot this week. There's a lot this week. The thing that really jumped out for me was just like the carceral state state of it all. And I like we we joked around a little bit about this, but the time loop prison as like the form that prison takes in a world in which authority is connected to control over time, temporality and the timeline is just like, I don't know. There's a real metaphor there for like what's going on, what goes on in our world. Exactly. I mean, like what is, you know, um, harsh, violent, like racist practice, like the American carceral state, if not like its own form of time loop prison. Totally. Um, in terms of like the repetitiveness, repetitiveness and like cyclical nature of the violence of the racism, um, of the multiple forms of violence that take place there. Yeah. And also the, like the, the going back in time of it all, right there. Mm-hmm. It's important that this event for Loki has happened in his past and that he knows how it ends. And there's something about the repetitiveness, the experience of incarceration now that has a similar, like, going back in time, like, being fixed at a point in time, I think is is a lot of what abolitionists are, are frustrated by beyond, of course, being frustrated by the, like, racism and violence um, of it all. Like, those things, I think, are connected for me. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm thinking, and as I imagine you are too, of like Joy James on prison and like neo-slavery or yeah, something exactly. like this um, is maybe what has been referenced there. And also that the TVA itself is a prison for variants, and yeah. then there's like a an additional layer, which is a kind of solitary confinement, but like solitary confinement with the ability to fuck up the person in solitary confinement. Yeah. Um, so it's like the prison within the prison yeah. is also part of the dynamic here. Right. Like past rootedness or backwardness of it all, I think is, is overwhelming. Absolutely. Part of this also then is the fact that we have the ongoing program of detaining children. 
and pruning them or turning them into like enslaved uh incarcerated laborers for the TVA. Yeah. So obviously we see in this episode Sylvie is a variant who is in prison while she is a young child. If I remember correctly, we also see one other child at the TVA um, who like tries to run away um, when Sylvie first gets to the TVA and is like brought into the line where she's going to get the Miss Minutes spiel. I'm not sure if that's a child, but the other child we get in this, right, is is Kid Loki at the end in the, right. the post credit scene. So ostensibly he's been pruned, so he's another child who's been brought in. So... Yeah. Yeah, so full scale regime of child detention, which obviously is very real world. So the United States loves detaining itself some migrant children. Yeah, uh, like deviance, if right, like mm-hmm. that the the yeah, trope precisely. of deviance is like, and mm-hmm. the way it gets linked to kids in the present moment and in the show is like a little bit too close for comfort. Especially if we read the TVA is seeking to, for the TVA, the mark of sovereignty is control over time in the way that we could say for states, um, a marker of sovereignty is control over space and mm-hmm. boundaries and borders and maintaining those, yeah. right? So a time variant has this analogy with somebody who refuses to accept the legitimacy or absoluteness of, you know, borders instituted by yeah. states. Yeah. Ugh, terrible. Um, which okay, brings us to an insight that you've already given us, but worth repeating here. I didn't remember giving this insight already, but the TVA is the Bush administration, basically. Yeah. There's this whole like logic of preemptive warfare. Yeah. Like with, and I think the killing of C20 is most emblematic of this, right? Somebody who had to kind of be extrajudicially killed um, through or through a sham judicial process, let's say. Yeah. But then the more broader kind of logic of, well, if the TVA doesn't engage in its exercise of like preemptive, forward looking, um, capture, detention, enhanced interrogation techniques, right? If we think about the time prison is enhanced interrogation technique, i.e. torture, and ultimately pruning slash killing slash sending off to black sites of these variants or whatever. Yeah. Like that's, I think, you know, what is what is the Bush administration's war on terror? Many ele- elements of it carried on, of course, by Obama and then by Trump and sure. then by Biden as well. Um, so, like, the whole TVA is war on terror. Bush administration gave me, like, flashbacks to my own, like, political coming of age during the Bush years. Yeah, the thing about the, like, point about, about variants and which I think, like, translates into into the analogy that you're making is that like some variants get pruned yet some variants are important for the functioning of the TVA and the sort of like arbitrary decision or at least what looks arbitrary does feel like the kind of um, like state of exception that I think we see in no like in full force with regard to the war on terror and the bush administration but as you've said it's not only confined to them there's something about the like that exceptional power that becomes the quotidian which is like has major bush admin vibes yeah and you know if you're sylvie and you've been in 
you know, you were imprisoned or attempted to be imprisoned by the TVA for so long. And somebody who is like detained as a child and turned into a forced laborer for the TVA is like, they've been working for the TVA as long as like some people have been in Guantanamo Bay, i.e. 20 years at yeah. this point. I mean, not a great analogy, but I think one that is like incredibly worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is the thing that's most interesting to me about Loki is is an allegory for the Bush administration. Yeah, and I mean, I think it connects back right to like the where we started our discussion in this episode, which is like the TVA and Hobbes, right? Like yeah. the TVA and mm-hmm. Leviathan. Like I think that these are not unrelated. Um, Absolutely right. And, you know, it's just us, like, really exercising our political theory muscles here. So if we're going to do that, we've done a lot of that this episode. Uh, Hobbes has been a touch point. I think, though, we should officially enter the cave, even though we have always already been in the cave all along, as you've pointed out many a time, Danielle. So, Danielle, who are we officially taking with us to the cave this week? We're officially taking with us into the cave Aristotle, and, and particularly Aristotle on friendship. Now, Aristotle is actually, like, a... I would say like a logical companion to the, to the Hobbes discussion that we've been having this episode. Um, Though perhaps not exactly the, the Aristotle on friendship. Um, It's not exactly what Hobbes was interested in, but it is what we are interested in. So Aristotle offers to us three different kinds of friendship. There's pleasure friendship, there's utility friendship, and then there's virtue friendship and political friendship for Aristotle is, is sort of a, the, the, a version of it is a, it's a version of virtue friendship, right? So friendship in which virtue friendship is a, a friendship that is reciprocal. There's reciprocity there. There is a, a give and take. There is a sense of like knowing oneself and knowing one's friend and productive, like democratic or collective politics is this ability to see yourself in others and see others in you and, and that, to rule and be ruled in turn. And there's this kind of virtue-based relationship that underlies that capacity to rule and be ruled. Exactly. That they're, exactly. And so I propose that we take Aristotle on friendship into the cave with us because I think friendship is a major part of this episode. I think it's a major part of the show. But I think the idea that friendship is is rooted in a kind of self-knowledge that that enables a broadening of one's worldview and sort of a broadening of the boundaries of oneself which is a version of, of like how we might understand virtue friendship i think like we see that in loki and sylvie i think we also might see that in mobius and loki even though it's not it's perhaps not perfect the fact that mobius can come to understand and believe what Loki is saying to him and that that is actually like a key point in this episode. I don't know. I think it says something about the role of friendship here. What forms of friendship do you see in this show, John? <laughs> I'm hoping there's like a tripartite form of utility friendship for Aerosol <laughs> and like we can put all of them in like the lowest tier of utility friendships <laughs> or maybe the first and second tier. There's like utility friendships for the characters that it's useful for them yeah. to be friends to one another. And then there's also the utility friendships in that it's useful for the MCU as a like capitalist enterprise for there to be these kinds of friendships so that's that's if i i you could convince me that loki and sylvie have like a antagonistic 
virtue friendship. I'm not going to grant it automatically, but I would entertain the argument. Everything else goes in the utility friendship bin. I don't think that for Aristotle, uh, virtue friendship can be antagonistic. I know, but I'm like a move <laughs> rather than an Aristotle. Okay. All right. Um, Sorry. I, as you know, I spent like a huge chunk of like April and <laughs> yeah. May reading Chantal Mouffe to like write 3,000 words immediately after turning grades in at the end of the oh semester in God. May. And I had COVID in the middle of all that. So it's just like a huge mess. But anyway, that's no, I'm, Mouffe on the mind. I'm here for Mouffe on the mind. I, I the My response was more like, of course, we weren't going to get anything more than utility friendship from you in the cave. And that's okay. Like, that's why we have both of us here. <laughs> and it's also true, I won't even call it this, but like at most, at most, Aristotle and I have a utility friendship. Oh, I think that's that, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think, listen, my views on Aristotle are like generally pretty negative because that dude has some dumb nonsense to say about tragedy. And my entire book project is basically like Aristotle was an idiot. <laughs> Why do we Here listen to him? Um, Let's put it this way. I considered making a, like, catharsis joke, and I was like, Danielle will hate it so much because I'll all be <laughs> making fun both of the MCU and upholding, like, a shitty notion of – simplistic notion of catharsis. <laughs> so I thought that was a bridge too far for our – Which you've heard me rant about multiple times, <laughs> not on air. I'm not going to subject our listeners to it. Exactly. But I do appreciate – thank you for that. I appreciate Welcome. you, uh, you know, pumping the brakes – even ever so slightly. Yeah, very slight, I recognize, but <laughs> welcome. I think we'll leave Aristotle in the cave. I feel like... <laughs> Please. As someone who was a defender of, of various forms of natural slavery, we can leave him chained up to the wall. A stand-in for Plato, like, clearly he's, you know, flipped the whole thing around. So, like, he's definitely staying down underground. Exactly. He can't. He can't go swim in the lake. That's the test, right? Who can come swim in the lake? He can't come swim in the lake. He's oh, not hanging with us that. on Lamentus. No. Uh, <laughs> Neither is Plato, for the record. <laughs> I mean, to the extent that you are Plato, then we have to reconsider uh, that. <laughs> and see, now, though, I'd like, if if this was a YouTube podcast and we, like, fully embrace cheesy YouTube graphics, yeah. like, the graphic for this episode would be, like, me, except there's a Plato mask yeah. over me and you and there's an Aristotle mask. Yeah, I'll take there. it. I spent a so. lot of time in grad school being, like, very excited about Aristotle's ideas, though not all of them, obviously. Yeah. So we'd have a terrible, like, bad tagline, and that, and it'd be like an ugly color of blue in the background. That's that's the vibe I'm I'm envisioning. That seems right for our YouTube thumbnail. <laughs> this feels like a good place to end. I uh, guess, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks as always to producer Amy. Thank you. Um, next up in the feed, you'll get Americans uh, season two, episode four, a little night music. In which I attempt to say some words in German. Yeah, in which I definitely do not. (laughs) (laughs) And so that'll drop on Thursday. And then next Tuesday, you'll get Loki Season 1, Episode 5, Journey into Mystery. We'll have a special guest on that one. Special guest. Very exciting. I'm going to be – we might say I'm going to be outnumbered in terms of how seriously we take the MCU next week. We'll see. Or at least just how positively we're willing to engage with the MCU. 
Uh, I continue to emphasize that I have been excessively positive towards the MCU for the past month. Excessively so. positive against your this is absolutely terrible is not objectively positive. <laughs> now whose knees notions of objectivity <laughs> between the two of us? My, how the turntables have turned. <laughs> oh, fair. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.